The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. It is thoroughly Jewish Thursday. I've got some reflections on the synagogue hostage situation and more. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, two more days officially where we are audio only. Of course, everyone listening on radio and podcast, it's always audio only. But for everyone watching our stream, two more days of audio only. And then, God willing, Monday, you will see our beautiful new studio and hear some great new music and a great new intro to the shows. Everything on schedule is just a few weeks later. Then we planned Michael Brown. Welcome to the broadcast. Thanks so much for joining us on this thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Any Jewish related question of any kind relating to the modern state of Israel, relating to Hebrew Bible, relating to Jewish tradition, Jewish background to New Testament, anything Jewish related, we're happy to take your calls. 866 866- Three, four, truth. I do want to talk to you in a moment about the hostage situation this past Saturday in Colerville, Texas. Thankfully, the hostages, the rabbi and other hostages emerged physically unscathed. And the terrorist that was responsible for the hostage taking was ultimately killed in a gun battle with the SWAT team there. I want to talk to you about that in a moment. Play a clip from the rabbi uh, and give you some reflections. Before I do that, it's very interesting that Israel, which is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world and which has, you know, the passport, passport, uh, excuse me, vaccine passport, which enables you to go to certain places and do certain things. So there's a, there's a lot of pressure to be vaccinated. There's even been pressure through the school system, uh, and obviously, government thinking this is the best way to save lives. Uh, interestingly, test results, they're not comprehensive, but test results that have been done have said even with, with four jabs, so the initial shots and then boosters, that they're really not effective against Omicron, against the current variant, which has been so massively contagious. And, and many others are saying, well, well, how many more boosters, how many more vaccines? These continue to be interesting questions. And Israel, like other nations, trying to process these to say again, I am not and have never been anti-vax. I am not one who's just said, don't get the vaccine, avoid it. I've never said that. That's never been my sentiment at any point. Uh, On the other hand, there are lots of questions, legitimate questions, and now more and more concerns from within Israel that reports of death and injury through the vaccine have not been adequately reported. In fact, the, the charges are that, that the reports have been actively suppressed or even removed from public Internet sites where the government was trying to say, hey, did you have an adverse reaction after the vaccine? And then got flooded and flooded and flooded with people saying, yes, and this has happened and that's happened. And then, and then that, it was just removed. So 
again, many, many questions as we all do our best before the Lord to be wise, as we all do our best before the Lord to be healthy, as we all do our best before the Lord to love our neighbor as ourselves. I just encourage you, be responsible, whether that means being vaccinated, whether that means changing your lifestyle, whether that means being more conscientious in behavior, whether that means being more prayerful, be responsible. I was meditating the last couple of days on Psalm 23 in Hebrew. What a glorious Psalm, obviously the most famous of all the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. Adonai ho'i lo'ech zar. The Lord is my shepherd. I'll lack nothing. And, and the second verse, that, that he causes us. It's, it's not that he says, hey, this could happen for you. But as the shepherd of the sheep, the, the shepherd has a lot of control and authority over the sheep, right? And it says that he causes us to lie down in green pastures. That's what the shepherd does. They, they bring the sheep to green pastures, and then they say, lay down here. Wow. I mean, that's, that's what God does for us. It, it, he, he leads us beside still waters in the midst of conflict in the midst of crisis, in the midst of cultural madness, in the midst of political upheaval, God remains our rock. God remains our refuge. God remains our shepherd. And think of it, in John 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. Yeshua, identifying with his father as shepherd, says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. And then Hebrews 13, speaking of Yeshua, calls him the great shepherd, the great shepherd. Come on, how is that? The Lord is our shepherd, our good shepherd, our great shepherd. How confident can we be in him in the midst of the storm? Friends, you turn into the line of fire, you will be encouraged. You turn into the line of fire, we will not hesitate from speaking the truth, but that truth will always be filled with hope and confidence because of the Lord that we serve. 866-34-TRUTH. Before we go to your Jewish calls, let's listen to this news report. You can hear the rabbi. This is a Reformed rabbi, so not Orthodox, not conservative, but Reformed, so liberal rabbi in Texas. The, the, the service was being live-streamed when the, the hostage crisis takes place, and the rabbi maintained real calmness in the midst of it and said it was, it was his training, rabbinical training, that kicked in. So listen to this description of what actually happened and how he managed to get out. 20 past the hour right now, an investigation is underway into Saturday's hours-long standoff at a Texas synagogue where a rabbi and three members of his congregation were held hostage. This morning, the rabbi addressed the terrifying ordeal and the moment he saw an opportunity to escape. I asked, made sure that the two gentlemen who were still with me, um, that, they were, that they were ready to go. Uh, the exit wasn't too far away. I told them to go. I threw a chair at the gunman and I headed for the door. And all three of us were able to get out without even a shot being fired. That, that's remarkable. I mean, in my mind, obviously we don't know the exact situation, but the guy's armed, 
right? And he, he's ready to kill and uh, wreak havoc however he can. So in, in my mind, if you throw a chair at someone, what's it give you a split second? I mean, unless you directly smash the guy in the head and, and incapacitate him or, or, or knock him out for, for, for a moment, basically you're buying yourself a second or two, right? You throw the chair at the person. Okay, let's say they don't see it coming. So they're stunned for a moment. You got to move quickly. So who, who can imagine what took place there? All right, a, a few reflections. Number one, let's not blow this out of proportion as if all over America, Jews were taken hostages in synagogues on Saturday. This was a, a one-off event. This is a man came from England, the Muslim came from England, and he demanded a woman that's nicknamed Lady Al-Qaeda, so a Muslim woman convicted of terrorism demanding her release from prison. Uh, his brother said he had mental health issues, and he also had a criminal record and is shocked that he got out of England. From what I've read, he was known in England but no longer considered to be a danger. So those are major questions. How did he get out of England? How did he get into America? Those are major questions themselves. But we don't want to overblow this as if this is happening all over America. On the other hand, it's extraordinarily alarming that it happens at all. We've had in recent years two synagogue shootings and, and now a hostage situation. And we know for sure that there has been a rising tide of anti-Semitism in America and more hate crimes related to anti-Semitism in recent years in America. <clears throat> we don't want to downplay that for a moment. Here, though, is what got many in the Jewish community concerned and upset. The FBI issued their initial statement, and they said that the, the Muslim hostage takers' demands were not, quote, specifically related to the Jewish community. And people say, what does that mean? What do you mean they're not specifically related to the Jewish community? You got a Muslim in a synagogue on the Sabbath taking Jews hostage and then making demands for the release of a Muslim terrorist. You said, well, it wasn't directly related. What would be directly related to the Jewish community if we said all Jews need to come to the synagogue and surrender or, or Israel needs to give up their rights to the land? I mean, what kind of demands is the person going to be made? This is a Muslim terrorist making Muslim demands and obviously thinking that the Jews have some kind of power and control and can make these things happen or, or, the, or the government will just work with the Jews. But, but the guy's last call, the, the transcript of the guy's last call to his brother, and the FBI certainly knows about this, right? That the guy's saying these blank Jews, you know, using the F word, these blank Jews, and we need to come to America, everybody come to America and kill these Jews and deal with these Jews. I, I mean, you talk about as anti-Semitic as can be. The guy's cursing the Jews. The guy's wishing death on the Jews. It's a synagogue. It's a Sabbath. He's taking Jews hostage. So there was outrage in the Jewish community over the statement, and the FBI revised it the next day. But imagine, imagine that a Jewish terrorist barges into a mosque on Friday, so on the Muslim Sabbath, the Muslim prayer day, right, takes Muslims hostage and demands the release of a Jewish freedom fighter, uh, you know, that's, that's held captive somewhere for his crimes against Muslims or crimes against others, 
and, and you know, some alleged Jewish freedom fighter, whatever. And you say, well, the it's not really directly related to the Muslim community. What? What if what if it was a an all black celebration of Martin Luther King Day and a white supremacist came in, took black Americans hostage, and this white supremacist demanded the release of a fellow white supremacist. Well, it's not related to the African-American community. What? So this, this was maybe the most bizarre thing that happened. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Oh, yeah. I've missed hearing that music. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, welcome to the broadcast. 866-348-7884 is the number to call with any Jewish-related question of any kind. Let me say one last thing. Yes, it is true that as Jews, we sometimes overplay the anti-Semite card. Just like I believe sometimes uh, our African-American friends can sometimes overplay the race card. When you have been through it, when you have suffered because of your ethnicity or your religion or the color of your skin, when you have been discriminated against, when you have been treated as second-class citizens and worse, it's very easy to, to see something there when it may not be there, all right? And, and certainly there are times when Jews will cry out anti-Semitism when it's really not, or, or when a fair critique of Israel is called anti-Semitism, and it's really not. That does happen. It can happen with any group of people. It's, it's understandable. But the vast majority of what we were calling out as anti-Semitism really is. And, and much of anti-Zionism really is anti-Semitism in that it completely delegitimizes and demonizes the modern state of Israel, as opposed to affirming the right to existence of the modern state of Israel and saying, hey, in the midst of it, we have some differences with your treatment of the Palestinians or with your settler policy in, in the West Bank. It's okay, okay, you can have those differences without being an anti-Semite. But undoubtedly, the massive amount of what we're seeing is legitimately Jew hatred, is legitimately called anti-Semitism. And, and that's why the hostage situation in a synagogue, on Sabbath, in America, why that so jarred the Jewish community. Understandably so. Understandably so. Okay, with that, we go to the phones. Let's start with Ricky in Nebraska. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. It's always a joy uh, getting to ask you questions. Sure thing. Um, <clears throat> so my question today is on the apocryphal deuterocanonical books. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe kind of a silly question and maybe something you've gotten before. But um, I don't know how much you've studied or read them, but it, it appears as if 
some of them, I think the book in particular, I don't have the quotes in front of me, which I apologize for, but um, The Wisdom of Solomon, I believe, is one of the Deuterocanonical books. And it appears to have many uh, messianic, uh, I don't know if they're prophecies, but they seem to, it seems to have sayings that clearly point to the Lord Jesus um, in regards to life and what he accomplished. How do you, because um, if I'm correct, you you don't view the apocryphal writings as inspired. Mm-hmm. How how do we balance something that clearly has historical value, and and clearly I, I think at least in my opinion shows some messianic merit? How do we balance that then with with not being inspired? And if if my question is making sense here, sure, absolutely. Uh, number one, we recognize there is much of great value in the apocryphal books, historical value, inspirational value, wisdom value. You know, like Ecclesiasticus or the Wisdom of Ben Sira is, is full of, of, of wisdom. We realize that, that this is one of the, the powerful streams of tradition in the Jewish community uh, and, and that God was in the midst of Israel, working in many different ways. And in addition to that, that there's much wisdom that's derived from the Scripture. So to say that there can be Messianic prophecy or words that... <laughs> would point to suffering Messiah or things like that in wisdom of Solomon or great wisdom to live by uh, or great inspiration, say Maccabees. We fully embrace that. The, in the Reformation days, when the Apocrypha was, was, was plainly separated from the Scriptures, it was commonly printed in between the Old and New Testament, saying it's of great value for edification, for learning there may be a verse here or two, you know, that, that would paint a picture of a doctrine we differ with, like prayer for the dead, etc. But otherwise, these were to be warmly embraced, read, but not for, for doctrine and, and not as, as divinely inspired. So there can be all kinds of insight. In, in other words, there, I could speak something today by the Spirit, and it's of great value, and it's even accurately predicting the future, but it's not the Bible. So the Apocrypha can have all kinds of divinely inspired things within it, but it's not the Bible. And that's how I'd look at it. It's it's very simple in in that respect when you just say, here, think of this. There were many prophecies uttered through history that are not part of the Bible. In New Testament days, gift of prophecy flourishing, these were true words spoken, but they were not the word of God. They were not the Bible. And that's where the distinction would be. Okay, okay, so... It would be, would you take it then, that makes sense, would you take it then that that could be very evangelistic to the Jewish people, since it obviously predates the writing of the New Testament, um, that could, it can be included with other arguments for the Lord Jesus's, um, you know, messianic headship, so to speak, if that makes sense? Well, yes and no. To a, a Jew who is looking at things through a more academic lens and recognizes that these were writings that were important in the ancient Jewish world, you could say, hey, what do you think that points to? What do you think that's saying? And and we know that it does predate Jesus. But to your average Jew, it's like, what's that? In other words, it's, it's not part of the Hebrew Bible. It's not part of any regular tradition of reading in the synagogue. So, yeah, while it was written in the first century B.C. or second century, whatever, that'd be no different to them than Dead Sea Scrolls. It's like, so? It's, it's not part of our Bible. So, 
you know, it, it could be of some interest, but it has no canonical authority to a, a Jewish person, a traditional Jew, and therefore it'd be like, yeah, some Jews may have believed that, so it's not part of our our actual tradition. That would be their viewpoint. Okay, okay, so not not necessarily like the same level of, of authority as like Isaiah 53 or, oh, of or course. something like that. Totally different yeah. ballgame. Okay. Totally different ballgame. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Dr. Brown. You, I appreciate it. You bet. Sure thing. <clears throat> 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, some Thursdays we are flooded with calls, and we've been flooded with calls this week as we've been back live. Uh, some Thursdays we are flooded with calls, and just like on a Friday, it's really hard to get through. And some Thursdays we've got open phone lines like we do right now. So if you've been wanting to ask me a Jewish-related question, this is a great time to do it. 866-348-7884. All right, let's go over to Cologne in Miami. Welcome to the line of fire. Cohen, Cohen. Hi, uh, Dr. Brown. Um, hey. When I, in, when I turned into you, you were talking about the Good Shepherd. Yes. Um, and that's basically what I wanted to talk about. Uh, I wanted to talk about Zechariah 11. And I think that next to Isaiah 53, Zechariah 11 should be like the most important uh, um, chapter in the, you know, one witnessing to Jews. Um, I'm telling you because I, 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 that's what I do on Tobia Singer and Tanakh Talk when I debate them, okay? When I debate them and I and I bring Zechariah 11, all the prophecies, they don't have a way out. They don't. Uh, and I bring the 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 Talmud that uh, that uh, confirms that Zechariah 11 was, you know, talking about the temple for rejecting the the shepherd. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, they, so they, they uh, Pro- Professor Mark Boda, one of the, the top evangelical Old Testament scholars, has a massive commentary on the book of Zechariah. And in his view, okay. these chapters, Zechariah 11, 12, 13, were some of the most important chapters for the early church in, in sharing the gospel, <clears throat> and that they are rich in messianic imagery. So in many ways, he would agree with your assessment of the importance of this. So here's my question for you. We know that the rabbinic interpretation, uh, right up through the, the top medieval commentaries, it, it's, it's very bizarre about the 30 pieces of silver, and it, it, it's obviously struggling with the, the plain sense of, of the passage there. And so we know there's weakness in the rabbinic interpretation, I get into that in volume three of, of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. But I want you to give the positive argument. In other words, if you're talking to Rabbi Singer, you're talking to a, another Jewish person and saying, hey, this points to Yeshua. Uh, can you give me that argument concisely? And, and uh, let, let's just do this. We've got a break coming up in less than a minute. So well, I, I just want you to give it thought. So I'm a Jewish person, and I don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, and I want you, in short form, we can't do it really long, to, to give me your best argument that Zechariah 11 is a messianic prophecy about Jesus. So we're going to do that on the other side of the break. Friends, 
Have you visited vitaminmission.com? No, not yet. By all means, check it out. It's the website for my friend, Dr. Mark Stengler, naturopathic doctor who was voted doctor of the decade, brilliant and a committed believer, and his health supplements are second to none. You get a special discount there as a listener to the line of fire. And then in turn, Dr. Stengler makes a donation to our ministry to help us expand onto more and more platforms. So check it out, benefit yourself, all right? And you'll benefit us as well, vitaminmission.com. Okay, we come back on the other side of the break, more of your Jewish-related calls, 866-34-TRUTH. Some comments I have about Gentiles posing as Jews to missionize. I want to talk about that. And we'll get a Messianic presentation from Colin in Miami. Stay right here. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. voice of Paul Wilbur. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Look, I always love doing live radio. It's, it's the joy of my day, every day, uh, no matter where, whatever's going on. It's every day I'm excited to be here. I count the seconds before we start, but missing those weeks because of COVID and stuff, I am all the more thrilled to be back with you. Thanks for being such a faithful and encouraging listening audience. 866 866- 348-7884. So I want to go over to Miami. Uh, uh, Colin, just give me yeah. your presentation, in short, that Zechariah 11 is a Messianic prophecy of Yeshua. All right. And by the way, when I like I was telling you, when I came in the show, you were talking about a true shepherd. Yes, yes. Okay, all right. Now, so it was like from God, okay? Now when I wasn't whole, John MacArthur came in, and I came into a prophecy to analyze the prophecy because of a video that John MacArthur has called The True Shepherd, Zechariah 11. Are you serious? Yes, yes, Just, yes. just now I mean, during this break. It's like from God. Isn't that wild? The news, That's yeah, sweet. Yeah, That's very like, sweet. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, I mean, take a look at that. Uh, the True Shepherd, Zechariah 11 by John MacArthur. Okay. I mean, and also, and, and also... I want you to analyze this. There's not a single anti-missionary refutal of Zechariah 11. So you think that doesn't have one? He has one about the, the 30 pieces, and he only talks for like two minutes. No one else, just for Judaism, doesn't have it. Okay? That's for you to analyze. Okay? Now, uh, I'm always on, on their channels debating, okay? On their Cohen and Levy. If you if you go to um, chapter eleven, verse eleven, it says, "And the poor of the flock that kept my word knew this, that it was the word of the Lord." Okay, what did Jesus said? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Okay, you you take that. You know, there's a Talmud passage. When they open the, when the the doors were opening, 
and they were they they um they 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 uh, how do you call? It? Yeah, they yeah. I'll, I'll just yeah. So so there's a Talmudic passage that says this is you know some would point it back to the time of the crucifixion that the doors of the temple swung open and it was a sign of of divine judgment. Uh, but here's what I want to do just for for time's sake, and and. Uh, I'm not sure if you said that John MacArthur had mentioned the true shepherd or just the MacArthur. That's what I thought you had said, but I, which would have been very interesting in, in the break here. But if you're just saying he's got a great teaching on it, uh, wonderful. So here's what I want to do for time's sake. I want to step back because I've, I've, I've written on Zechariah 11. Uh, I want to do my best to kind of condense the arguments and then present them and explain why this has been a challenge for the rabbinic community to refute and why it would be good for us to look at these more. So I'm, I'm going to follow up because obviously, obviously there's a lot on your mind and a lot of different angles you want to present this. So I want to do it when we come back uh, in a future show in a more concise way and then explain what's lacking in the rabbinic response. Hey, thanks for drawing attention to the passage and thanks for focusing on the good shepherd, the true shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who came back from the dead, died for us and came back from the dead. Hey, thank you. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Orlando in High Point, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. How are you today? Doing great, thanks. Yeah, my question deals with uh, when when the Jews left Egypt and they went into the wilderness, they said that they stay there for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Now, how long was it before they sent the spies? So I'm trying to draw a parallel between it's basically in the second. It's basically in the second year. So it's, it's 38 more years from that point on when the spies come back, the 10 out of the 12 come back with a bad report. It's then 38 more years in the wilderness, but a total of 40, which corresponds with the 40 days that the spies were in, in Canaan. Okay. And, and then is that, is there a possibility that you could draw a parallel with the 70 weeks of, uh, Daniel? Where, how, how so? You know, where, uh, they didn't believe See, they, at the beginning, they didn't believe they could take the land. So they didn't believe in Messiah after 69 weeks. And the last week, instead of being weeks, could be years instead of uh, just years of uh, like seven years. But actually, seven times 360 years. Uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't read it like that. I, I always love when people dig in the word and look for more insight and try to see if there's a significance in, in a specific word or phrase or if there are parallels, but no, I, I would not see any any parallel there whatsoever. The only thing I would say is that Daniel was focused on a period of 70 years as prophesied in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, that the Jewish people would be in exile for 70 years, and Daniel, being one of the first to go into exile, said, hey, I've, I've been here 70 years, it's going on 70 years now, and he was able to pray for the return of the Jewish people at that time, God then said, there's something much bigger. There's something much bigger. And that's what I want to talk to you about. And it's not 70 years, but 70 times seven, 
490 years, or, or it's not specifically called years there, but 77s, which then, as we, we see, must be a period of 490 years. Um, but no, I, I, would not, I would not read the text in that same way that you are, although I appreciate you digging and looking for insight, always. Thanks. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Ryan in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you for taking my call, Dr. Brown. Sure thing. Um, you know, there's something that's uh, stuck in my mind for quite a while. Um, I, I want to say it bothered me, but, um, you know, it's just something I had never forgotten. Some time ago um, at church, we had had a guest speaker uh, who was a Messianic Jew. And um, during his presentation, he had made mention of the, of the notion that... Um, you know, the Jewish community um, did not look as favorably upon Christians as uh, Christians do towards Jews. You know, personally for me, um, you know, of course, with my relationship with Jesus, um, I, you know, I kind of find a connection to the Jews and the Jewish people and, and the culture, you know. Um, I look at them as, you know, brothers uh, almost, you know, maybe cousins, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, but it just kind of struck me odd that uh, he had mentioned that, you know, the feeling wasn't mutual, so to speak, you know. Do you, do you find that uh, to be truthful or? Well, through history, when Jews were heavily persecuted by Christians, when they were kicked out of countries if they weren't baptized, when they were sometimes given the choice of baptism or death, when they were treated as second-class citizens, when they were made to wear Jewish star uh, when they were called Christ killers, when uh, after an Easter service in Eastern Europe, so in the late 1800s or the 1900s, they would fear for their lives knowing there's probably a Christian gang that's going to come marching into their town and brutalizing them. So their view of Christians, for the most part, was very negative because of the negative behavior of Christians. And, and um, even though there were some positive situations, here, you know, if I say, hey, what happened in 1492? Uh, you know, you grew up in schools in America. You say, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's when he came and discovered America. If you ask a Jewish person who knows their history, what happened in 1492? They'd say all non-baptized Jews were exiled from Spain. Uh, when, you, when you mention the word crusade to a Jewish person, that's a very negative word. And, and on and on through history. And a lot of demonizing of the Jews, even beginning in the second, third centuries, and then heavily in, in the fourth century, as, as Christianity becomes a state religion under Constantine, the Jews now suffer a fresh wave of discrimination and even ultimately persecution from the church. So because of that, through history, Jews have not had the highest view of Christians and Christianity. The positive is that for, uh, for most all of America's history— there, there was not heavy anti-Semitism. There was some, but there was not Jewish bloodshed here in, in the country. And evangelical Christians for decades now in America and Europe and other countries have proven to be Israel's best friends. So for, for a couple of generations now, especially post-Holocaust with so many Christian leaders grieving and repenting over the... Christian anti-Semitism in Europe that paved the way for the Holocaust or helped pave the way for it, uh, there's been a much more positive feeling. 
that the very, very, very religious Jews would still be as negative, but the larger Jewish community and the more liberal Jewish community would have much more positive views of Christians, would recognize Christians as genuine friends, would have more respect for the Christian religion. So thankfully, that's become much more positive in, in recent decades, but through much of church history, understandably, it was very negative. So it's probably still heavily um, on the Christian community to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, any, you know, specifically any anti-Semitic um, incidents are vocally denounced. And, yes, sir. You know, it's, it's always healthy for Christians to do that as Christians and to say as friends of the Jewish community, you make it clear, look, we want everyone to believe in Jesus. We believe Jesus is the Savior and Messiah of everyone, but we unconditionally stand with the Jewish people. We, are, we have your back. We believe in your rights to, to the land of Israel. And if someone is coming after you, they need to get through us first. So, so uh, Ryan, you, you are 100% right in your sentiments. And, and words go a long way. When words are back with deeds, even more powerful. But... Look, people are people. And when you hear in your own community Christians speaking up on your behalf, Christians understanding your situation, Christians showing solidarity, and then acting as genuine friends, it makes a massive, massive difference. So let's keep demonstrating that love, Ryan. I've seen it consistently for 50 years in the Lord as I've traveled around the world. Extraordinary love for the Jewish people in the churches. Hey, thank you, sir. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be back live with you. 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, two things, then we go back to the calls. Do you have my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood? It originally came out in 1992, has been continuously in print until we put out a new edition, expand it, update it, 2019. The most translated book of any I've written lays out the horrible history of anti-Semitism in the church and God's eternal purposes for Israel. If you've not read it, let me strongly encourage you to get a copy of the book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. When you order it, make sure you get the new edition because it's expanded and updated. You'll find it painful, eye-opening, life-transforming, and, and will further give you insight into what the Word of God says about Israel and the Jewish people. A book that complements that, if you already have Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, is Christian Antisemitism where I confront a lot of the things happening in today's church. Now, I do that as well, and our hands are stained with blood, but that's principally looking at the past with some on the present. Christian anti-Semitism is focused almost entirely on the present, and, and we go through a lot of dangerous things uh, being taught today uh, in Christian anti-Semitism. So check those books out. They're on our website or wherever you order your books. Second thing 
in the last year, uh, a few people have been exposed who, according to everything we know, were Gentiles, Gentile Christians, who then in, engaged in intensive study in Judaism and then either got ordained without the people knowing that they were Gentile Christians and not really Jews, or simply began to, to proclaim themselves as rabbis. But in a couple of instances, they lived right in the heart of ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities for years and, and now been exposed and, of course, cast out of those communities. They may have been sincere, <laughs> thinking that, that they were doing what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 to the Jews, I became a, Jews, uh, a Jew to win the Jews, that they may have thought they were doing what he said to do. Uh, it, in point of fact, it was ugly deception. In point of fact, none of the organizations with which I work, be it Jews for Jesus or chosen people or one for Israel or others, practice that. They make known we are followers of Yeshua. Now, you may be a Jewish person who feels called to reach the religious Jewish community because of which you take on customs and traditions that you don't have to today as a Jewish follower of Yeshua, but you do it to live among the people, to have a kosher house so people can be welcome, but you make it known that you're a follower of Yeshua. That's fine. That's just cultural sensitivity. That's fine. And what Paul did was he took on customs and traditions he didn't have to to be among his people, but that's how he had previously lived as, as a Pharisee. He's simply saying, I'm not under this. This is not a command from the Lord to live like this, but to win my people, I'm very happy to continue to live in this lifestyle. I know ultra-Orthodox Jews who have come to faith who still live as ultra-Orthodox Jews because that's their lifestyle, that's their community, and as they have opportunity, they share the good news with others, but they do it with wisdom and with care, just like Christians sharing their faith in communist China have to exercise wisdom and care. They do that. But the idea of a Gentile posing as a traditional Jew or a rabbi to win Jewish people is something that I wholeheartedly reject and oppose, as do all the major organizations that I know and individuals, Jews involved in reaching our people with the good news. All right, back to the phones. We go to Dave in... Dave in Canada is gone. Uh, let's go over to Justin in Independence, Kentucky. Hello? Yes, hello. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah I'm Justin. Um, I just wanted to start out by saying, I, I think I think I just I got COVID, so I'm getting over it now, and I'm, I have shortness of breath, so if, uh, that's irritating. I'm sorry. But um, I did want to say... Um, um, I, I found your uh, your debates uh, this is about a year and a half ago, two years ago, on YouTube, and I just really like. Uh, I mean, I, I was obsessed with just watching them constantly. But um, your your ministry has uh, has brought me back to the Lord, and I, I wanted to say thank you for that. Uh, hey, hey, Justin, but, you know it would be a real yeah. blessing, so we can rejoice with you when you have sure. a moment. Go to our website. There's a link just says contact and shoot us a note with your testimony. If you haven't done this already and, and how we were able to play a role 
uh, in you coming back to the Lord. We want to rejoice together, and we want to share that with, with others so they can be encouraged, because this is always a joint effort. But I'm, I'm thrilled oh, totally. to hear that. I'd, I'd love to hear more. And on the health end, yeah, make sure you get plenty of rest and drink plenty of, of, of water, liquids, to get yourself uh, rehydrated there. Yeah, okay, so sure. your question today. Okay, yeah. Um, my question was about um, the mixing of wool and linen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, ju- I just read a couple of books. Uh, I read uh, John Walton's book on uh, Genesis 1 and uh, then his, uh, his next book um, on Genesis 2 and 3. Do, do you know who I'm referring to? Sure, of course. Okay. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of new. Uh, this is all new to me as far as like looking at the uh, Genesis as as more of a material origins and not a, um, um, or I'm sorry. Um, right. That, that Genesis one is, is teaching how God basically sets up the universe as a temple in which he dwells, etc. Yeah. And, and let me just say this, John Walton is a terrific old Testament and ancient Eastern scholar, really one of the top that we have in the evangelical world of uh, these theories or especially about Adam and Eve and things are, are also, highly controversial. So it's worth reading. It's worth investigating, uh-huh. but you always have to remember that as you read the rest of the Bible, it's taken for granted that, that God created the universe in six, in six days. You know, that's, that's the takeaway that's spoken of over and again, that the new Testament writers seem to refer to. And of course the historical reality of Adam and Eve being something grounded, especially in the new Testament. So I find the writings fascinating worth considering, but I, I, I've been grounded in biblical scholarship and ancient Eastern scholarship all these decades that I'm just kind of looking at that as, is there any insight to be gained from this? Is there, as opposed to having a total paradigm shift? Huh. Okay. Um, for me, um, after reading the book, um, I was, I had always uh, taken the six days as literal, like I live in Kentucky, so we're really close to the, um, uh, the ark and all of that. Yep. Yeah. So like I, I had, I had always taken that as like a literal uh, six days and a rest. But um, you, looking at it from a literary standpoint, like uh, you know the the uh, um, framework uh, theory where it's you know right. The first half um, is setting things up. The second half is filling it, or just all the parallels yeah. to the building of the tabernacle and the building of the right. temple. See, uh, Justin, I came at this from a different angle. I remember I was in grad school and, and I have no scientific background. I've often shared that when classes started to get serious in high school, the science classes, I was just getting high and not paying attention. Then yeah. we started this new school, this protest school called SAFE, where we didn't have to have any formal classes. And I got born again at that time. So I was just in the word day and night. So, and then when I was in college, I never took scientific classes. So to me, I was never troubled with young earth, old earth scientifically because I had no scientific background. But when I was doing my ancient and recent studies at New York University and then reflecting on cosmology, so stories about the origin of of the earth and the origin of the universe, that when you were reading the accounts, be it Babylonian accounts or Egyptian accounts, whatever, the purpose of the account, yes, it was partially to explain how we got where we are and how the world is where it is. But it was really primarily to explain why this particular deity was transcendent. What, that, that, that the cosmology was basically an apologetic 
for the supremacy of a particular deity. And that the main thing you were to learn from reading the cosmology was more about a theology. And as, as I started to read Genesis 1 in that light, and then I began to look at the great themes, you know, of light and darkness and order of chaos and day and night, and then how those, the- and, and, you know, victory over the, the chaos monsters, you know, whatever, et cetera, that, that right. a- as I read it, it, completely ignorant of, of many of the arguments that John Walton would be bringing about parallels with temple and, and tabernacle and, or, or any of that. But as, as, I, as I read it, it's like, wait, wait. This is not here to teach me science. It, it may be scientifically accurate. It may not. It may be six literal days. It may not. But that's not why it's there. It's there to teach me about God. It, it's there to give me insights as to who he is and how he operates. And, and then as I reflect it through the rest of Scripture, yes, there are statements made in six days, the Lord made heavens and earth, right, which could be literal days or not, debate we won't get into right now. Um, and I'm intimately familiar with the debates on all sides. But the main takeaway you get is that God is the creator. God is the one who brings light out of darkness. God is the one who brings order out of chaos. God is the one who establishes his ways on the earth. God is the one who makes everything to reproduce after its kind. And God is the one who makes us in his own image. These are the major takeaways from Genesis 1. To me, often the scientific debate is a distraction. So, Justin, we're thinking the same way here. Make sure you send us your testimony one day. We'd love to hear more. God bless. Another program powered by the Truth Network.